Welcome to Pete's Soup. I'm your host, Jim McCarthy, and on this episode, we're going to talk failure to thrive. It's a topic you'll need to know if you're taking care of kids, and the general principles and nutritional guidelines are helpful for almost all of your patients, especially the ones who haven't quite crossed the threshold for a diagnosis. Failure to thrive is also almost guaranteed to come up on your next exam, so let's get started. Before we get into managing failure to thrive, we should agree on a definition, or somebody should. Because for as common as failure to thrive is, there really isn't a solid consensus definition for the diagnosis. It's broadly defined as abnormally low growth parameters for age and sex. Most of the time that means weight, although longer term poor nutrition starts to affect length and later head circumference. Regardless of how you try to define failure to thrive, growth charts and especially trends over time are going to be your most important clue. For the vast majority of kids under 2, you should be using the World Health Organization growth charts. But of course, there are exceptions. Premature infants get their own growth charts, although in a pinch, you can slide them backwards on the standard growth chart. For example, marking an ex-32-week baby 8 weeks earlier on the growth chart than their actual age gives you a decent estimate of where they should be. There are also a lot of disease and syndrome-specific growth charts out there that you should be using if your patient has a known medical problem. The charts for Down syndrome, achondroplasia, and cerebral palsy are all fairly well established, but it seems like there are more and more being developed all the time. Not long ago, I found a disease-specific growth chart for Wolf-Hirschhorn syndrome for a patient whose weight gain had us concerned. It was only based on about 100 patients, but considering that it's a 1 in 50,000 diagnosis, that's not a bad data pool. If your patient has any underlying condition and doesn't look quite right on the usual growth charts, it's worth at least checking PubMed or Dr. Google to see what's out there. Once you have the right growth chart, you can see if your patient fits any of the definitions for failure to thrive. A caveat to start things out. All of these definitions have their downsides, and using any one of them alone has a pretty poor positive predictive value. One of the more common definitions you see is a weight less than the 3rd percentile, or weight for length less than the 5th percentile. Similarly, some sources identify failure to thrive as 20% or more below the median weight for length. These kids are all definitely small, but not all of them are failing. If you listen to our episode on growth, or if you happen to just look at other people from time to time, some of us are just small. The fact that there is a third percentile for weight means that about 3% of people are expected to be that weight or less. If your patient is at the second percentile, but consistently gaining weight and tracking along that line, there's a good chance he's just born to be small, and it'll be fine. Change over time factors more into two of the other common definitions for failure to thrive. Dropping across two major percentile lines on the growth chart, and low rate of weight gain for age. These definitions aren't perfect either. It's pretty arbitrary to decide that 95, 90, 75, 50, 25, 10, and 5 are the major percentiles. And if a baby is tracking along at the 8th percentile, he only has one percentile line to cross no matter how much weight he loses. I like low weight velocity for age a little bit more, but even then, ups and downs can be normal. The fact that all these definitions have their flaws is probably a big reason why there's not one consensus way to diagnose failure to thrive. In practice, diagnosing failure to thrive tends to be a combination of definitions and an overall sense of how the patient is doing. I'm a hospitalist, so my job here is easy. By the time I see a patient, at least one other doctor has decided there's something wrong. Primary care doctors have to do the hard work by being the first person responsible for identifying a problem. 
Knowing the risk factors for failure to thrive can be helpful in identifying which kids you should watch more closely. Prematurity and low birth weight are major medical risk factors because those babies need more calories and have a higher rate of feeding problems than the general population. Chronic diseases and oral motor dysfunction are other big risk factors on the medical side, but the vast majority of failure to thrive risk factors are psychosocial. Lack of social support, poor education, substance abuse, young parents, single parents, and postpartum depression all increase the risk of an infant failing to thrive. Parents with, let's call them atypical, beliefs about health and nutrition are also at a higher risk of having an infant fail to thrive. Babies really shouldn't be drinking tea, soda, or anything other than breast milk, formula, or water in the first year of life. If parents want to try any kind of vegetarian, paleo, vegan, or other diet, they should run it by a doctor or nutritionist first to make sure it has everything a growing baby needs. The single biggest risk factor, and one that overlaps with a lot of those risks I just mentioned, is poverty. When every day is a struggle to get by, even decently educated parents with good intentions have a hard time making sure their child gets enough to eat. If you have a family that's struggling financially, have these conversations and work with them to get them plugged into every support program they qualify for to help keep that baby growing. Whatever definition you use, failure to thrive comes down to the patient not getting the calories they need to grow, but that can come around in a few different ways. The most straightforward is an otherwise healthy kid who just isn't eating enough. It could be poor diet, incorrect formula preparation, low milk supply for the breastfed babies, parental ignorance, or, in the sad cases, neglect. For the kids who are eating as much as you'd expect for their age, you have to look for other problems. In general, they fall into two big buckets, increased metabolic needs and insufficient utilization. Kids with utilization problems have the same energy requirements as anyone else, but there's something wrong in the steps between taking in the food and getting it to the cells. Malabsorption is a major concern. The nutrients don't cross from the gut into the bloodstream as efficiently as they should, so the patient is only able to use a fraction of the calories he takes in. Cystic fibrosis, short gut, and inflammatory bowel disease are all potential causes of malabsorption that come up fairly commonly on tests. Diabetes is a similar concept, but down on a more cellular level. The gut absorbs just fine, but the cells aren't able to take glucose in from the blood, so the body shifts to breaking down fat stores for energy. Finally, for the right population, namely people with more exotic travel history or some suspicious dietary habits, you should also think about parasitic diseases that are stealing away some of those calories they take in. Increased metabolic requirements are a little easier to understand than energy utilization problems. These patients have some type of underlying condition that makes them need more calories than you would expect for someone their size. Completely anecdotally, conditions like chronic lung disease, congenital heart disease, and spasticity, all of which make the body work harder to keep up normal functions, come up most often. For patients with spasticity, their muscles are constantly contracting. It's an all-day, everyday workout, and those muscles are going to demand more calories. It's the same idea for lung and heart disease. Normal stuff takes a lot more energy than it should. Either the heart or the lungs are doing extra work just to keep you running at baseline. And once that's taken care of, there's not much energy left over for growth. If your patient's tone, heart, and lungs are all normal, it's worthwhile to check thyroid function because hyperthyroidism increases the metabolic rate and burns more calories. A hidden malignancy is another possibility. Cancer cells grow fast and consume a lot of energy. But you typically only go looking for cancer if all else fails or if there are other signs pointing you in that direction. 
Trying to figure out which of those three big baskets your patient belongs in starts with your initial evaluation. And unless this is the first episode you're listening to, you probably already know I'm going to say you start with a good history and exam. If you can single out a point in time where weight gain started to drop off, you can dig in to see if anything happened then that might have changed things. Different feeding or sleeping patterns, new childcare arrangements, a different formula, anything that might have had an impact. If there isn't one point in time, or you can't pinpoint any changes, your focus is going to be on a thorough feeding and diet history. What does your patient eat? How much? How often? If it's a formula-fed baby, how are the parents mixing the formula? Does it seem like there are any problems with swallowing? And, maybe most importantly, what do the parents think might be causing the problem? There really isn't any information too small when you're trying to pin down the reason your patient is failing to thrive. On exam, you start out with measurements, making sure they're being plotted on the right curves to show a trend over time. Once again, weight is going to be the first thing to drop off, then height, and last of all, head circumference. Sometimes you can see signs of particular nutritional deficiencies, but the main sign of failure to thrive is going to be decreased body fat. While all of this is going on, watch the interaction between the parent and child. Poor attachment is a risk factor for failure to thrive, and watch a feeding if you can. When you decide about inpatient versus outpatient management, keeping with the theme we've had for most of the failure to thrive recommendations, there aren't any set in stone rules. If your patient is severely malnourished, you're suspicious of a serious underlying medical diagnosis, or worried about abuse or neglect, you should think about inpatient treatment. Most children's hospitals will have their own set of guidelines for admission. Where I practice, we think about bringing in children under 2 years old with any of the criteria I mentioned earlier, caregiver impairment, unstable vital signs, or outpatient treatment failure. No matter where you're treating the patient, you manage failure to thrive from a lot of different directions. I mentioned social support and programs earlier, and you should absolutely try to find any community or government program you can to help your patients and their families. You should also look into nutritional counseling and education for the parents, and think about a speech therapy evaluation, especially in infants who might still be trying to figure out how to eat. Those support services matter in both the short and long term, but the most important thing is getting your patient the calories he needs. But how many calories is that? There are a lot of different ways to figure out baseline caloric needs that go from ballpark figures to connecting your patient to a machine called a metabolic cart that measures oxygen consumption and CO2 production to calculate an exact calorie need. A nice quick and easy way that I came across during board prep is the Holiday Seeger method. It works on the assumption that kids need about 100 kcals per kilo per day for the first 10 kilograms of body weight, 50 per kilo per day for the next 10 kilograms, and 25 per kilogram after that. So a 22 kilogram patient would need 100 kcals per kilo for the first 10, which starts us off with 1,000, then 50 per kilo for the next 10, which gets us 500 more, and 25 per kilo for the two left over, bringing us to a total of 1,550 kcals per day. That 22 kilogram child is almost definitely not failing to thrive, but it helps to have the example go through the whole weight range. It's not perfect, but it's easy to remember and use if you're taking a test or don't have a dietitian handy. That gives you the basic requirement, but there's still the matter of catch-up growth to get back on the right curve. Again, there are a lot of different methods, all of which are based on the baseline energy requirement. Increasing the baseline energy requirement by 50% is usually a good enough goal to get you catch-up growth, although really every bite above that initial goal is helpful. 
When you have your calorie goal, next you make a plan to meet it. It's easiest for babies who haven't started solid foods yet. Breast milk is about 22 kcals per ounce, and standard formula is 20, so you divide your goal calories by 20 or 22, depending on what the baby's eating. So if your goal for the day is 500 calories, you need 25 ounces of formula or 23 ounces of breast milk. From there, you divide that volume by your usual number of feedings per day, and you have your goal volume per feed. Bottle feedings are nice in this situation because they let you see exactly how much the baby is taking in. It's a little harder for breastfed babies, but you can estimate milk supply by weighing the baby before and after nursing because one milliliter of breast milk weighs about one gram. But if you're really worried about the patient or mom's milk supply, you might insist on bottles of express breast milk over nursing in the short term. Still, there aren't a lot of things that would make a pediatrician say to stop breastfeeding altogether. If the baby seems to be having trouble with larger volumes, you can have smaller, more frequent feeds or consider fortifying the feed to add some extra calories per ounce. Anybody who's tried to count their own calories knows things get harder once you start eating a wider variety of foods, which is why older kids are a little trickier. You still count as best you can. For the first year, milk and formula are still the primary source of nutrition, but it's hard to be as exact as with the little ones. The benefit of more foods on the menu is more options for adding extra calories. Peanut butter and cheese are usually toddler favorites that are packed with calories from protein and fat. Avocado, whole milk, and meats are also nice and calorie dense. And if all else fails, you can start adding butter to everything. Seriously, that's what one of the GI doctors at the hospital where I work recommends for adding calories in Failure to Thrive. Once the plan and support services are in place, it's time for follow-up and fine-tuning. The time in between weight checks and the weight gain expectations vary based on the setting and the patient's age. Obviously, inpatients are going to be checked every day. Again, my job is easier than the primary care doctors. But in the outpatient setting, there's a lot more variability. Infants are growing faster and usually get checked week to week or even every couple days. If things aren't working, you should be able to tell pretty quickly and make other plans. Older kids aren't growing quite as quickly, so there's usually more time in between weigh-ins, and it might take as much as four to six weeks to call something a failure of outpatient treatment. For any patients who do fail outpatient treatment, especially if it seems like the parents were doing all the right things, it's probably time to think about an admission. If the patient still isn't gaining weight despite meeting their calorie goals, whether in the inpatient or outpatient setting, you should start digging for those absorption and utilization problems we talked about earlier. Failure to thrive is a common problem with a lot of possible causes, but it's pretty manageable if you work through systematically. For take-home points, remember that poverty is probably the single biggest risk factor, and diagnosing failure to thrive has a lot of definitions that all come down to poor growth over time. You need to get a thorough history on the patient's diet and feeding patterns, and then set calorie goals and arrange all the support your patient might need. From there, it's a matter of follow-up and adjusting the plan until you get it right. Most of the time, it's a feeding or diet problem, but you should always keep underlying medical issues in mind. Thanks for listening. Hopefully this episode helps keep your patients growing like they should. If you liked what you heard, please give us a rating on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever else you found us. I'm always open for suggestions. You can email me directly at pedsoup, that's P-E-D-S-S-O-U-P, at gmail.com. I'm Jim McCarthy, and we'll be back next time with more Peds Soup.